Hey there, history fans, and welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Melissa. Hope everyone is having fun and getting ready for the spookiest day of the year. If you haven't seen our posts on our socials, I put out a poll on Tuesday for an upcoming episode called it Escape Attempts versus Matahari. So if you want to vote, it's going to be on our Instagram. Go check that out. I also posted it on Facebook. So you're welcome to leave a comment on there. Let me know which one you are interested in. Uh, the poll is going to run until Friday morning. If you prefer not to use the socials, you can always welcome to use our email as well to email us your choice and let us know. The winner for the poll will be announced on Friday afternoon. And now on to today's spooky, spooky topic. So we are going to go to six different haunted cemeteries here in the U.S. Some may be familiar, some maybe not. But if you happen to any of these, you've got experiences, pictures, please let us know. We would absolutely love to hear about it. Anything spooky is always worth talking about. And with that said, let's go look at some graveyards. So first on our list, we are going to probably the be the most haunted on this list for sure and this is the city of tombstone so tombstone itself was founded in 1877 by ed shefflin and he was actually a part of a group of soldiers that were on a scouting mission looking for chiricahua apaches and according to legend ed actually had a habit of leaving camp to go look for rocks i don't know what kind of rocks specifically but apparently that was a habit that several of his fellow soldiers told him not to do. And they kept jabbing at him saying that you go out, you look for those rocks. The only thing you're going to find is your tombstone. However, well, Ed and his determination did find something in the desert with silver. So once he actually found a rather rich line of silver in the Arizona desert out of either spite towards his fellow soldiers or just a playful naming he ended up naming the area itself tombstone so because silver was sort of a rare but very sought after commodity in the wild west at the time the news of the silver mining area spread very quickly so soon you ended up with prospectors lawyers businessmen homesteaders etc everyone that could came out to the newly founded tombstone to mine the silver And due to the massively quick growth of the town, within roughly 10 years, the population was said to have had 7,500 people. Well, that seems kind of small. So this is actually somewhat of a misleading report because this 7,500 people only included those who were registered to vote, which meant a 21 and older white male. So recent estimates have actually put out that men of other ethnicities, including women and children, puts the population of Tombstone within the main 10 years that it was a silver mining town between 15,000 and 20,000, which is a, makes a lot more sense. So in its heyday, Tombstone actually boasted hundreds of businesses, but given you have a population of 15,000 people, that sounds about right. And these would range from more than 100 saloons, because that's where everybody went. You had brothels, gaming halls, eateries, churches, schools, general stores, and even one of the oldest community pools in the entire state of Arizona, which is still in use today. So one of the most popular places for entertainment within the city and one of the most haunted, which I'll 
get to soon is, of course, the Birdcage Theater, which is gorgeous. So this theater was actually more than just a stage for performers. It was also a combination gambling hall, saloon, and brothel, all in one. And it actually opened on Christmas Day of 1881 and closed in 1889. But during that time, it ran 24-7. And because of its propensity for entertainment and the alleged 140 bullet holes within the ceiling, at one point, the New York Times even reported that this theater was, quote, the wickedest and wildest night spot between the Barbary Coast and Basin Street. I don't know which Basin Street they're referring to. I'm wondering if that may be in San Francisco. Tombstone, particularly at the time, was kind of a halfway point in traveling from St. Louis, Missouri to San Francisco. So the basement of the birdcage actually was transferred into a poker room where many Many famous residents and famous names within the Wild West actually played at. You had Doc Holliday, you had the Earps, you had the Stantons, you have Bat Masterson. Go look him up. His life is crazy and amazing. You even had George Hurst coming to play too. So legend actually has it. This room was where the longest running poker game in history took place. And it's said to have run 24 hours a day, lasted eight years, five months, and three days because it never stopped. And it said that more than $10 million passed through the hands of the players that came to this poker game with, of course, the house taking 10% of the profits. So it made a lot of money. Uh, the game apparently ended, however, when groundwater began seeping into the mines and tombstone and flooding many of the buildings, which, yeah, that would, that would do it. And this also not only signaled the end of the birdcage, but the end of tombstone itself as a silver mining town, because... Now your mines are all flooded. There were also two devastating fires that hit the city. The first was in June of 1881 and was started when a cigar, a cigar ignited a barrel of whiskey. And this fire particularly destroyed over 60 businesses within the, the downtown area. The second was on May 26th of 1882. And this one began in the bathroom of the Tivoli Saloon. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but it's estimated that this fire caused $500,000 in damages, which is three times the amount of damages that the previous fire caused. And with a very large population and the lawlessness of the Wild West, Tombstone actually boasts a very famous graveyard, Boot Hill Graveyard, or Boot Hill Cemetery. There is a difference, I know. Uh, the cemetery opened up in 1879 and was actually the major burying place until the new Tombstone City Cemetery opened up in 1884. Now, many actually believe that the graveyard got its name from those who died unexpectedly and violently, and usually, as the saying goes, buried with their boots on. However, this is, was not exactly true. So after the opening of the new cemetery, Boot Hill was just actually referred to as the old cemetery. It wasn't actually called Boot Hill until the early 1920s, when it was actually renamed in reference to a cemetery in Dodge City as a way to sort of drum up some tourism. Probably the most well-known place in the entire city is, of course, the OK Corral. So this was, of course, the site of the 30-second gunfight between the Earps and the clanton McLowry gang, also known as the Cowboys. So this took place on October 26th. Funny enough, the actual day I'm recording this episode, I thought that was a very fun surprise, on October 26, 1881. So the clanton McLowry gang were actually positioned in a vacant lot behind the corral 
from around the corner off Fremont Street, you had the Earps plus Doc Holiday rounding up to kind of confront the gang. So there's different theories and speculation as to why, but the prevailing general theory is that there was an order within the town that you could not have weapons on you within city limits, particularly guns. So if you came into city limits and you had a gun, which everyone did, you had to check it at the livery stable or the corrals, and it would be kept for you until you leave the city. And anyone caught having a firearm within city limits would be arrested. So the general theory is that Virgil Earp, being one of the town marshals, went over to the Clan McGlory gang, the cowboys, to at the very least disarm them. How far that was going to go is still uncertain. But what happened is a matter of facts. So we do know that once the two, you had three Earps plus Doc Holliday, and you've got Clanton and the McLory brothers, and you had them sort of face off. And within 30 seconds, just 30 seconds, it said that 30 bullets were fired. And once the smoke cleared, we had three dead. That would be Billy Clanton plus the McLory brothers. And three were wounded, Virgil and Morgan Earp, as well as Doc Holliday. So as I mentioned above, there were, of course, many, many, many deaths in the city over its rough 10 years, very rough 10 years as a mining town. And we are just going to go right back in order and cover some of the most haunted places. I know this isn't much of a cemetery, but it's tombstone. We had it on the list. Can't not cover all the fun stuff. So we're going right back to the birdcage. So over its history, it said that 26 people were killed inside this theater, whether by shooting, stabbing, or even suicide. So while inside, many claim to smell cigar smoke, see apparitions of previous patrons, smell whiskey, and even hear the piano playing, even though no one's actually playing it. And there have even been reports of laughter from all floors, and even spectral hands and feet have been seen walking across the state. So one of the most infamous murders was of the painted lady, a woman named Margarita. And it's claimed that her heart was, quote, chiseled out from her chest with a double-edged stiletto. So it turns out Margarita was a competitor to Gertie the Gold Dollar, and Gertie worked at the nearby Crystal Palace. They were both brothel girls, I guess. So the story goes that in 1882, a man named Billy Milgreen was found, quote, entertaining Margarita, and apparently Billy was a regular of Gertie's and even possibly her live-in lover, so when Gertie heard of this, she sought out Margarita, mainly to confront her because she thinks that maybe she stole her man. So when Gertie found Margarita, legend says that she grabbed her hair, pulled her head back, exposing her neck, and then grabbed a stiletto that she had been carrying stashed in her garter and cut out Margarita's heart. So although Gertie was actually arrested for this, she was not charged with anything because according to records and police at the time, if there was no murder weapon, there's no evidence. Even though there were eyewitnesses to the crime, she was let go because there's no murder weapon. So Gertie's weapon wasn't actually found on her person at the time of the murder. However, about a hundred years later, it was actually found discarded behind the theater. And that stiletto is now on display at the birdcage. But there are reports of people having seen both Margarita and Gertie still haunting the birdcage theater. So we're going to go right back to Boot Hill Cemetery. So not only do visitors and investigators actually say they see apparitions within the graveyard, which is kind of normal, but what's strange is they say they see spectral lights and hear unusual sounds. There's also a gift shop for the graveyard. And then 
that gift shop is actually supposed to be haunted as well. So according to employees and probably shoppers alike, items will mysteriously disappear and then reappear. Items will be unexplainably disheveled and disturbed and pulled off shelves. There's even a sweatshirt rack that uh, seems to kind of rotate on its own. And of course, people say that they see apparitions within the shop. And the ghost of Billy Clanton is actually said to be a poltergeist here at Boot Hill. And the rumor goes that he rises from his grave every night wandering in the town, his pistol at his side. There's even a lady in red that haunts the cemetery, and she's referred to as Tombstone's Godfather. I don't know who she is or why she's called the Godfather. I could not find that information out. And there's actually one story of a journalist who visited the graveyard and claimed to have had a conversation with a spirit that came up from an unmarked grave. So the journalist tells this story like this. He stopped by an unmarked grave, just happened to be standing in front of it, and heard a childlike voice saying, that was nice of you to do that. And upon hearing this, the journalist jumped back going, oh, what happened? What, what? Okay. So out of curiosity, he decided to step back towards the grave and heard the same voice going, you came back. You must like to play with me a lot. And then the voice began to laugh. And then the journalist says at the same time that he heard the laughing, he saw a black shadow figure approaching him from a corner, from the corner of his eye. And with seeing the black shadow figure from the corner, the spirit fell silent. And all that was left before him was the unmarked grave. So last on our list, we are going back to the OK Corral. And here, visitors and employees both claim to see apparitions, hear phantom horses riding by, phantom gunshots. And it's said that the apparitions are probably the Earps and the Cowboys. But there was also another fight that took place at this exact corral on July of, or in July of 1897. And this is between Justice Jim Burnett and a man named William Green. So Jim was actually a justice of the peace for Charleston, which was a town located between Sierra Vista and Tombstone, so not too far away. And apparently he was a very no-nonsense kind of guy and had a very good reputation of tracking down outlaws. So I don't know why William Green decided to make an antagonist out of himself, but apparently he had a habit of bullying Burnett. And this eventually created a very big feud between them. And at one point during this feud, Justice Burnett went as far as to build a dam blocking Green's family's water supply. So one day this dam was actually blown up, believed using dynamite. And unfortunately, Ella Green and her friend Katie Cochran, both children, were swimming in a swimming hole near this dam and they were killed. And for this, Green vowed revenge. So he actually put an ad in the Tombstone Prospector saying that he would pay $1,000 at that time for anyone with proof to find out who blew up the dam that killed his daughter, Ella, and her friend, Katie. And he actually received a tip saying that it was Burnett. So Green was able to track down Burnett at the OK Corral itself and shot him three times. Burnett dying instantly. So it's also said that Burnett's ghost haunts the OK Corral. And he briefly appears, but if you try to approach him, he vanishes just as quickly. And there are so many more. I know we're not talking about Tombstone as a whole, and I know we're supposed to do cemeteries, but if you want to hear so many more hauntings and history about Tombstone for much more in-depth information, 
we have a, a link to ghostcitytours.com slash tombstone in our source notes. Go check that out. There's so much information. Now we are going to an actual cemetery. This next one is the Camp Chase Confederate Cemetery in Columbus, Ohio. And this was established in 1861. It was actually created by Governor William Dennison as a meeting place for volunteers from Ohio during the Civil War. So when Lincoln actually called for 75,000 volunteers to aid in the fight, Governor Dennison asked for volunteers from his state and used the grounds as a training for the troops. So in addition to being a training ground for troops, it was also used as a prison camp for those who were supporting the South. So according to records, between the winters of 1861 into 1862, most of the prisoners came from Kentucky and West Virginia. But as the war raged on, by 1863, it's estimated that the prisoners at the camp numbered around 8,000. So it's a big place, but maybe not that big. So although the goal was to keep prisoners alive and at least relatively healthy, this didn't always go to plan. So as the main goal of the camp was to house, clothe, and feed the troops, sometimes there was a shortage of food and the prisoners went without. So in addition to that, the quarters were relatively cramped because it wasn't that big and disease was rampant, which is something you'll hear a lot about prisoner of war camps during the Civil War if you look into it. And it's said that during the winter of 1863 into 1864, it was a very bad outbreak of smallpox and it ended up killing hundreds of prisoners. So in order to alleviate the suffering of prisoners, particularly from these outbreaks, November of 1864, both the North and the South arranged an exchange of prisoners and eventually 10,000 prisoners from both sides were allowed to go back to their fighting sides. So with over 2,000 prisoners dying at the camp, Camp Chase originally buried them at a Columbus City Cemetery nearby. In 1863, however, they did establish their own cemetery and the bodies that had been previously buried in the city cemetery were now reinterred in the Camp Chase Cemetery. So at the end of the war, it's believed that the total number of bodies at Camp Chase Cemetery numbered 2,260. After the war, the camp was actually closed. And what remains today is two acres of land in the cemetery. And over time, there have been services and monuments to these fallen Confederate soldiers. So in 1896, the first was by William Noss. And in June of 1902, a monument was erected to, as a remembrance to the fallen soldiers. And there are even memorial services held to this day. So in terms of ghosts, there really is one main legend of a ghost that haunts this cemetery. I couldn't find more than just the one. And that would be the woman in gray. And she is actually said to wander the cemetery and leaves flowers on two of these specific graves here. So according to those who have seen her, she is a young woman dressed in a gray Civil War era traveling suit. And it is said that she always has her head bowed down as if she's crying. And in fact, those who have said to see her claim that when they do, they themselves are overcome with sadness. So it's possible that this lady in gray might be the spirit of a woman named Louisiana Rainsburg Briggs. She was born in December of 1849 and passed away in February of 1950. She was 100. And I found a brief bio on her from Find a Grave. And it says that she was a Confederate sympathizer raised in Missouri. 
During the war, she went to live with family in Ohio in order to keep her safe. And according to Fungrave, her brother-in-law was actually one of the caretakers at Camp Chase. So while she was alive, she was known to wander the cemetery, placing flowers on the grave, which was done after the war, which also after the war was a very unpopular thing to do and a northern state placing flowers on a Confederate grave. So for this, she actually became known as the Veiled Lady of Camp Chase. And this was because she was said to wear a veil while she walked the cemetery at night, putting flowers on the graves. So this woman in gray is often seen standing over two specific graves, as I mentioned. The first is a grave of an unknown soldier, and the second is Benjamin F. Allen. I couldn't find a whole lot on who Allen was, but I did find out that he was a member of the 50th Tennessee Infantry Company D, but that's kind of it. I don't know much about his life. There wasn't much on record. There wasn't anything I could find even about what he did or what life was like for him while he was at Camp Chase as a prisoner. We don't even know what he died from, but it said when the lady in grave, when she shows up and sort of bows her head over the graves, flowers just sort of unexpectedly appear right next to them. There was even a reenactment that took place in 1988, and some people there claimed to have heard the mournful crying of a woman, and the crying continued for about a minute or two. But the source was never actually identified. So many that day who were reenacting the battles there believe that it was the spirit of the great lady. So we are going to go down south of it to the Bonaventure Cemetery in Savannah, Georgia. One of my absolute favorite cities. One of my top five favorite cities in the whole country, uh, especially in terms of being haunted. So prior to being a cemetery, it was a plantation owned by the Tatnall and Mulrine families, and these families had actually emigrated to Thunderbolt, Georgia from England in the 1700s. So by 1771, the two families together had a total of over 9,000 acres of land. That's a lot of land. And although they're living in America, the two families were still loyalists to King George III and fought against the Patriots during the Revolutionary War. It was because of their allegiance to the crown, however, that after the war, they were considered traitors and had to flee the country. So once they left, their lands were actually put up for auction in 1782. But in 1785, Josiah Totnell, the son of the previous owners, had actually finished his studies in England and moved back to Savannah and bought his family plantation back, although it was much smaller. So over the years, he actually became a prominent politician within the state of Georgia, having been elected as governor, a Georgia legislator, and even a U.S. senator. So in 1846, the land was bought from Josiah Totnell by the Wiltberger family, who turned the land into the Evergreen Cemetery. It was about 70 acres. And a couple years later, William Wiltberger, the son, created the Evergreen Cemetery Company in June of 1868. And it remained a private cemetery up until 1907 when the city of Savannah purchased the cemetery and then renamed it Bonaventure Cemetery after the original name of the plantation. So over time, this cemetery has grown from its original 70 acres to 103 acres. And because of the stylistic nature of memory, many of the memorials here, as well as the nature that just kind of grows around it, all the oak trees with hanging Spanish moss and all the pretty stuff, it is sometimes compared to Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. 
There are many notable people buried here. One of the most famous is actually singer-songwriter John Mercer, and that was actually probably one of the most visited graves in the entire cemetery. Another famous grave is that of Gracie Watkins, or Little Gracie, as she's sometimes called. Unfortunately, Gracie died when she was six, and as a memorial to his daughter, her father actually commissioned a lifelike statue of her, and it's a very, very beautiful, well-done statue. There's even a wrought iron fence that surrounds her grave. But when you visit, you can see, and also leave if you like, flowers, stuffed animals, toys, and generally any other items that would make a child happy. On top of general tombstones here, you will see many stone sculpted works of art as memorials to specific people, such as Gracie, or as part of family plot. According to gallivantertours.com, the best time to go, especially if you're not used to the humidity of the South, is as soon as they open at 8 a.m. So the early morning sunlight piercing through the Spanish moss that hangs off the oaks through the cemetery, especially if you like photography, will give you a lot of fun, interesting angles to work with, especially if you enjoy taking photography using natural lighting. So in terms of the ghosts, there was a small child statue in the cemetery known as Little Wendy. And if you've ever read Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, you might recognize the statue because it was used on the original book cover. And legend goes that the statue itself is haunted by the girl who posed for it, a girl named Lorraine Greenman. This particular statue, though, is no longer in the cemetery. It actually has been moved to the Telfair Museum of Art in order to avoid destruction and defacement. And the other is, of course, the statue of Grace. And according to accounts, many have actually seen a little girl looking just like the statue wandering around a cemetery and playing in the area known as Johnson Square, where her father once actually had a hotel. And the people that have seen her say that she looks exactly like a living child wearing a white dress. But if you get too close, she vanishes. And there is a character within the book of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil named Minerva, the voodoo priestess, who is actually based on a real person from Savannah's history, a woman named Valerie Fennel Aiken Bowles. And it's said that Valerie Bowles was a root doctor, which has, uh, I think, some basis within voodoo or African religions. And all, but this is uncertain. Uh, Bowles herself was very much of a recluse, not often seen in public, and said that she only ever had two pictures of her taken. So she, she really did not like to be around people. But people knew her for some of the things that she did, which is why the character of Minerva is based off of her. And within the book, Minerva herself is known to go to the local cemeteries and collect graveyard dirt using voodoo rituals. And because of this, it has apparently, since the book's publication came out, has led visitors to come and collect soil from the cemetery at Bonaventure, which I maybe recommend not doing unless you have permission to do so. <laughs> Might seem a bit disrespectful. And we did cover a Confederate cemetery, so now we're going to go cover a Union cemetery. So for this leg of the journey, we are going to Easton, Connecticut to Union Cemetery. Now, this one, I couldn't find a whole lot about, at least historically. This cemetery has been around for a very, very long time, but I couldn't find a whole lot about the history of it, which I thought was a little strange. So this particular section might be a bit short. 
This cemetery is actually known to be one of the most haunted cemeteries in the state, if not one of the most haunted cemeteries in the entire country, and was even investigated several times by both Ed and Lorraine Warren. They even published a book about it called Graveyard. And this cemetery actually lies at the intersection of Route 59 and Route 136 and is next to the Easton Baptist Church. And this cemetery has been around for almost 400 years, which is why I'm surprised I haven't been able to find a lot of historical information about it. And you can find graves here from the late 1600s, the Revolutionary War, War of 1812, Civil War, the World Wars, and just modern day. And it's real pretty to look at. It, it's not just the, from a historical archaeology standpoint and as a tapophile, this, I love super old cemeteries. So in terms of spooks here, one of the most well-known apparitions is the Lady in White, because almost every cemetery has a Lady in White. And she has not only been seen in pictures, but she's also been captured on video more than once. The most famous is actually taken by Ed Warren himself on a camcorder in the early 90s. And there is a link in our source notes to actually watch that video. And it's actually quite interesting to see. And this lady in white can often be seen wearing literally all white. And she's said to have long black hair. And apparently her MO is to walk around, walk down Route 59 and like, literally down the middle of the road and be quote, hit by a car and the driver only to find out minutes later that there was nobody on the road one rumor goes around that in the early 90s this happened to one driver and there was actually a dent on his car so we don't know who she is we don't know where she came from we don't know which grave or what part of the cemetery because she's sort of seen all over so there's different theories as to her background. Some say that she was murdered in the 1940s after she had killed her husband, just an unfortunate victim of a murder. Others say that she was yet another unfortunate victim of murder, but she was killed in the early 1900s and that her body was dumped behind the Baptist church. And yet others say that she died during childbirth and has to spend eternity looking for her lost child. And another spirit that's known here is called red eyes, which seems to be exactly that. Ghostly glowing red eyes that watch you throughout the cemetery. And these eyes are most frequently seen wandering after dark. However, I think that one may have been debunked, but it's a fun story. <laughs> but in terms of this specific cemetery, please keep in mind, the cemetery is very strictly off limits after dark and the local Connecticut police will be looking out for anybody trespassing. They are very active in the area, but if you want loads of tales of experiences of people going to the cemetery and seeing and experiencing things, visit the damnedct.com. So that stands for Damned Connecticut. There's a link in our source notes. There's so much to read. So our next cemetery, we are traveling back down south. We're going to go to Cookville, Tennessee to Stamps Cemetery, also known as the witch's graveyard and this particular cemetery is very different from your traditional coffin in the ground cemetery that you would see for typical american or early european cemeteries here in the u.s here at stamps cemetery the bodies are buried under two stone slabs that form a tent-like structure above them and they also have foot and headstones in front of each one 
Now there are some more modern standard tombstones also here too, but these particular tent or comb uh, tombstones are the ones that typically date back to about the 1800s. And these headstones from these tent graves also have strange markings on them. There are stars that point upwards and downwards. There are symbols that are mixed into the text while you're trying to read the person's names and dates. And somewhere in time, since the cemetery started, probably because of these strange markings, it became known as the witch's graveyard. And it's said that those with the stars facing up are good witches, and those with stars facing down are said to be bad witches. Regarding these stars and symbols, it's actually believed that Mr. Stamps, don't know exactly which of the Mr. Stamps that are buried here, but there was a Mr. Stamps who began the cemetery, and it's actually a family pot, but the originator of the cemetery possibly may have been illiterate, but not wanting to send his ex on his tombstone, thinking that it might just get confused with other people's graves, he used symbols such as the stars. It's also believed that these may also be Freemason symbols and that Mr. Stamps himself may have been a Mason, which if it's the 1800s, that's entirely probable. So the tombstones themselves also aren't much of a mystery either. It's said that many of the early residents in this area of Tennessee were of Scots-Irish descent, and it is Scottish tradition. I don't know about modern day, but back then, it was tradition to bury people with stones on top of the graves. It's called cairns, and this is thought to be a modification of that. So instead of stones piling up, it's just uh, stones piling up in a different way. And it's also probably because there isn't a lot of topsoil in this particular area of Middle Tennessee. There is also a link in our source notes for a short film that actually goes through different cemeteries within Middle Tennessee that you can also see more tent graves in, not just over at Stem, uh, Stamps Cemetery. It's also believed to be known as Witch's Graveyard because there is a nearby tech university with that's said to actually have a pentagram etched into one of its doors. And there was a rumor at one point that said that this marking was the mark of a witch. And students would hold, quote, initiation rituals for new students, I think, and take people to the cemetery at night and tell them that the cemetery was full of witches. And if you did this or that, things will happen to you. This is actually just a tale that's only told at the tech school. It's usually outside the tech school. It's referred to as Stamp Cemetery. But within the tech school, it's typically referred to as Witch's Graveyard. There is an actual pentagram etched into one of the doors on campus, but that particular symbol that's etched onto the door is also on the badge of the school as kind of denote that this is school property. So it has nothing to do with the cemetery itself. I couldn't find any actual hauntings associated with this cemetery. It's not super big and it's not super old, but there are some longstanding lore related to potential witches' curses that are in reference to the strange symbols and stars on these tombstones. So it's said that there is a specific tombstone within the cemetery, but it doesn't specify which one. But if you touch it at midnight, you'll either be hexed, cursed, or possessed, or possibly all three. Rumor also says that if you touch the headstones with the down-facing stars, so the pointy end is facing down, at midnight, any <laughs> there's more than a few, so I don't know if it's specifically one or all of them, but... 
They said if you touch that particular type of stone stone with a down-facing star at midnight, a demon is then summoned and will appear. I would say just go visit, be respectful, and enjoy the peace of the cemetery. It's certainly unique. Enjoy that too. So the last on our list is Oakland Cemetery in Iowa City, Iowa. And the most famous monument here is the Black Angel. And the Black Angel was actually commissioned by a woman named Teresa Feldevert, and she was an immigrant from the Czech Republic. So her story goes that she married a man named Franciszek Dolezal in 1865, and they had a son named Edward. And eventually, Teresa and Edward moved to Iowa City in 1877. And unfortunately, Edward died at the age of 17 in 1891, and his mother had him buried in Oakland Cemetery. His marker actually looks like a cut tree stump, which was a symbol, uh, I guess, used to denote a life cut short. So after her son's death, Teresa moved around the Midwest for a bit and then finally settled in Eugene, Oregon. And this is where she met and married a man named Nicholas Feldevert in 1897. And Nicholas died in 1911, leaving Teresa with an estate worth around $800,000 today. And it was soon after that that she began making plans to erect a monument in Oakland Cemetery to honor her fallen family. And she was actually recommended by a friend to ask up and coming sculptist Mario Corbell out of Chicago to create a bronze angel for her. So Teresa ended up hiring him in April of 1911. While she waited for the statue to be completed, she actually exhumed Nicholas's body in February of 1912 and had him shipped to Iowa City to have him buried with Edward. And the statue arrived in Iowa on November 12, 1912. And it's possible that the angel may have already been darker than expected when it was shipped. So some say that the statue, because it's made of bronze, was originally a very golden color. But there are some sources that say Corbell was experimenting with adding patina to his brown works. And that can certainly change the shading and color on bronze, for sure, at least on metalworks. So we're not specifically sure. There's also a rumor went around that there was a court case against not liking the statue the way it was and she wanted a new one and I don't know which one is fact but Teresa did die on November 18th 1924 she was cremated in the nearby town of Davenport and her ashes were interred under the black angel or what is now the black angel uh, with Nicholas as well as Edward on November 21st 1924 so in terms of the black angel and the reason that she's black today she's bronze and bronze oxidizes. That's you're gonna be that's your scientific road to go down for this. But of course, there are stories unrelated to the oxidation as to why the angel has turned black. It's also said that she turns a shade blacker every year on Halloween, too. But it's also said that the angel, in its sorrow for the family that had so much tragedy, has turned black over the years. And you can also apparently sometimes see tears running down her face. It's also said that at one point the angel was struck by a bolt of lightning, which turned it black. It's also said that the angel is very protective of this little family, and anyone who dares to touch, kiss, or hurt the statue will be struck dead by the angel's vengeance. I don't know why people go around kissing a statue, but no, okay, okay. One story goes that a girl kissed the angel's feet while there was a full moon out in the cemetery, and she died six months later. 
Another story says that there was a high schooler who decided that he would go and touch the angel on Halloween. And it said that the moment he touched it, his heart stopped and he died. This, none of this, unfortunately, has stopped stupid people from trying to deface this angel. And at one point, someone or some people even used a hacksaw to cut off some of her fingers. There has even been a paranormal group. I'm sure there's more than one that has probably come and tried to find evidence of the afterlife at the cemetery, let alone in most cemeteries. But there was a sci-fi show a few years back called Haunted Highway that apparently visited the site and got some strange happenings happening while they were there. There was apparently some weird audio sound that they were capturing. They captured strange things floating around throughout the cemetery on their cameras. But probably the most unusual thing, although I could not find a picture of it, but they claimed to have actually captured something very unusual. So it was a cold night while they were there and they were using their thermal camera to capture anything that they could happen to come across. And when they pointed their thermal camera at the angel, instead of being blue, because it's a cold night and it's metal, apparently the angel showed up red on the camera. Hmm. Well, that's going to be it for today's haunted episode. I hope I didn't scare anybody. Again, if you have been to any of these locations or just had a haunted ghostly encounter you want to share, please post it onto our socials and let us know. Very interested in hearing from you and seeing your pictures. I might even post a few I have between now and Halloween. Let's see if I can find some pictures. And with that, I will sign off for today. I'll talk with you all next week as we continue to trek through history. Bye.